When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. This sort of thing shouldn't happen, to put it mildly. And now every stone that may needs turning must be turned to see what's occurred. These are the words of Swedish Prime Minister Carl Bildt the day after the tragedy. They were echoed by the new Prime Minister, Ingvar Carlsson. At this point, it seems clear that the government is intent on recovering the dead. So what do the authorities do next? Let's find out. This is the secret history of the Estonia with me, Stephen Davis. Just hours after the disaster, reports started emerging about water coming in through the bow visor, the part at the front of the ship where the cars drive on. This seems to have come from interviews with some surviving Estonian crew members. You can hear them in this news clip, although it's hard to make out exactly what they're saying. So water was coming in through the front of the boat, at the yes. door. Uh, in, in this time, I in the missionary room, yeah. and the... I see the camera in the mission room from the... To the front. The so you and you saw water coming in. He nods in response to this. So he seems to be saying here that he saw on the camera in the mission room that water was entering the front of the boat. But this is obviously just one small piece of a very large puzzle. And at this point, the rescue operation hasn't even finished. But this initial idea about a problem with the bow visor, sticks. According to some reports, government officials then start talking openly about a design mistake. The Swedish, Estonian and Finnish governments formed the Joint Accident Investigation Commission the next day. This is something you'll hear a fair bit about as the story goes on. It's sometimes called the JAIC or JIKE. On the 1st of October, they locate the wreck. The Finnish government vessel Halle, with members of the official investigating team aboard, has spent all day above the Estonia, receiving hours of television pictures of the sunken ferry from cameras operated remotely on the surface. Timelines of these early parts of the investigation are a bit confusing. There's so much activity happening, and three countries trying to work together as part of this new joint commission. It can be a bit of information overload. But amongst all the mayhem, investigators were gathering sonar images and video footage. Reports then started to come out that the bow visor was torn off completely during the storm. The investigators say the bow door of the Estonia became detached after a locking device failed. The door still hasn't been found. The remotely controlled television cameras, which have already recorded more than 15 hours of pictures, will probably return to the scene of the wreck when the weather allows. 
In the meantime, the investigating committee of officials from Estonia, Finland and Sweden will continue to study the video already ashore in considerable detail. A couple of weeks into this investigation, the Swedish government minister in charge of the disaster calls a press conference. She appears alongside Johan Fransson. He's the chief legal officer for the Swedish Maritime Administration. Here, he's explaining what he's learned about the possibility of a dive down to the wick. The type of diving that would be involved is so-called saturation diving, i.e. it would be carried out by divers who are put under pressure and who live under pressure for about a month before being replaced by another team of divers. Fransson is certainly painting a picture that any dive would be an extremely complicated operation. It is of course extremely risky, apart from the fact that the diver can get stuck, which of course is a fear that every diver lives with. His diver's umbilical may be damaged, and he may be injured by the life raft suddenly coming loose. There will be lots of broken glass, etc., that you can cut yourself on. If you were to search the ship with the aid of divers, it would take something in the order of two to four months, but that's very uncertain. Clearly, it's being presented as very dangerous and complex. But other experts, including from a diving company later hired to examine the wreck, said that it was actually relatively straightforward. Franson goes on to discuss the possibility of raising the wreck. The other way to take care of the deceased in the ship is, of course, to lift the ship, the whole ship. Taking into account the fact that the ship is lying at a great depth and taking into account the fact that the ship is pretty heavy from a technical standpoint, it's, of course, an extraordinarily demanding task. The depth per se is not an obstacle, but it makes the work far more difficult and takes much longer. It's strange that he says the ship lies at great depth, but then says this isn't an obstacle in itself. What does that actually mean? In fact, the wreck lay at the relatively shallow depth of 74 to 85 metres. By this point, a media debate had started about whether the wreck should be salvaged at all. The government set up a council of ethics, consisting of philosophers and religious leaders, but curiously, no marine engineering or salvage experts. The idea was that this council would decide whether raising the wreck and recovering the victims was morally right. Many of these council members have since passed away, but one of them, Bishop Caroline Crook, took part in a recent Discovery Channel TV documentary. It's clear from the interview that she felt a great responsibility to be trusted with such an important task. She said that the council was given a lot of information which they depended on because they knew nothing about how to salvage a vessel. They had to rely on the details they received. Another council member described being shown graphic images from submarine disasters and being given gruesome descriptions of what state the bodies would be in. He said they were clearly trying to steer us away from salvage. Remember, these people were not technical experts. 
They were being asked to make a moral decision based on the information they were given. While the Ethics Council deliberated, the Swedish government hired a diving company called Rockwater to examine the wreck. We think this is the area where the life traps would have been stored. It almost looks like a, some sort of rack arrangement. One of the divers, Stuart Rumbles, and project manager Ray Honor spoke about the mission in the same TV documentary. Here's Stuart, with thanks to Discovery Plus for these clips. So we got to the site, set up location. We were given a dive plan. We were going to go into the cabins below the car decks. And um, the water depth on the Estonia actually was quite shallow. I think the bottom of it was 85 meters, which really a free diver, you can hold your breath and go down to 85 meters, believe it or not. It's interesting that Stuart says it's not that deep for a diver, given what we heard earlier from Johan Fransen. Here's the project manager for the dive expedition, Ray Honor. We weren't just freely swimming around the Estonia doing what we wished. There was authorities on board. They told us exactly where to go and exactly what to look at. So the divers being directed by the Swedish authorities and their instructions did not include bringing up the bodies. To not actually recover those bodies, you know, we were all, it was upsetting. As divers, we could have brought them up, it'd take a few hours. Wouldn't have been a problem. Our conclusion at the time was that uh, a significant amount of the bodies could have been recovered. We, we pinpointed 125 victims, which we documented in our reports. Of course, there could have been more that we could have recovered if that had been the intent. It's not a lot compared to 852, but it's a lot for sure. Somebody said, we're not going to recover the bodies because we're going to be traumatised. But it was more traumatization, actually leaving the bodies there that we could have recovered. 25 years later, we still talk about the Estonia and all wonder why. Rockwater presented their report to the Swedish authorities on the 12th of December. On the same day, the Ethics Council reached its conclusion. Three days later, Prime Minister Ingvar Carlsson made a statement to Parliament. For us, Swedes, for us, Swedes, the ferry disaster has no counterpart in modern times. We have not experienced anything like it before. The immediate reaction of most of us, whether we had relatives on board or not, was that the ship should be salvaged and the bodies brought home. I myself was one of the people who held this view. Since then, we have all gained additional knowledge about the scale of the disaster, and about the consequences of a salvage and taking care of the deceased. The relatives and everyone else have a right to be informed, even if such information will be received with despair by some people. The Swedish government's decision is that the passenger ferry MS Estonia shall remain at sea. Behind the decision is broad approval amongst the Riksdag's various parties, the Estonian government is today making a corresponding decision. The place where MS Estonia sank is to be deemed a burial site. To ensure that the sanctity of the grave is respected, the ship is to be covered 
and special measures are to be taken to give the burial site legal protection. The Swedish Maritime Administration is being tasked with swiftly furnishing the government with proposals as to how the ship should be covered and guarded. In less than two months, the government's position had changed from leaving no stone unturned to burying the wreck in concrete. To me, this U-turn is shocking. But I was keen to hear what the survivors and relatives felt about it. Here's me speaking with Anders Eriksson, who, you might recall, survived six hours trapped underneath a lifeboat. After the disaster, Mm -hmm. your government promised to bring the ferry to the surface and to get the bodies out. Mm -hmm. And instead did the exact opposite and tried to bury it in concrete, including your friend and all those people. What do you think about that? Oh, it's uh, awful to take uh, that decision. It's really unbelievable, actually. How could they do that? Actually, there was a crime investigation going on. It was a crime scene, and they took the decision to to do this on the, in the crime scene. That's not normal. The police is always looking after, taking care and identify people who are lost. That's the way they work in Sweden as well as in in other uh, normal countries. But not in the case of the Estonia? No. I put the same question to Helen Bogdanov, who we met in the last episode. Her father was the ship's doctor who mysteriously disappeared from the survivors' lists. My first thought is like, I was never asked. Why didn't they ask every single person? My mother was never asked about it. Like, they just took a group of uh, people nodding and uh, willing to do whatever. It's like bad science, you know. You can get any result if you want. And if you design the, the study the way you want the result to be. But that's bad. So you think that the, the group that they got together, it was the ethicists, it was designed to just give them the result they wanted. Of course, this is what I believe, totally believe, because I don't know anyone who would have not wanted to bring Estonia. Like, what about the peace in the hearts of those people who don't know anything about it? Yeah, what, what, what about your peace of mind? No peace of mind. My uh, connection to the Estonia disaster is that I lost my mother-in-law and her new husband. This is Lennart Berglund. He heads up a foundation for the relatives of the Estonia victims. So it's my children's grandmother and my wife's mother that is deceased as a result of Estonia. We'd been emailing for several months, and when we finally met in Stockholm, our conversation turned quickly to the actions of the Swedish government. Carl Bildt was the leaving prime minister and he said that we should definitely recover the bodies. And um, uh, the social democrat prime minister, Ingvar Karlsson, he said that we should recover the bodies and the ship. And they did the opposite. They did the opposite. Okay, so this was the start of a process, I guess, where you have devoted a lot of years to this. Yeah. What, What job were you doing when the ferry sank? 
I was working for the community where I lived, which is uh, 25 kilometers from Borlänge, which is another major community. And Borlänge hired me as a temporary solution to support uh, relatives uh, because they also were of, of the opinion that we need to go ahead and recover the bodies. Everybody demanded that. And it was a widespread demand all, all over the nation, actually, in the beginning. And it was really urgent to start with the bodies outside the wreck. And as you said, initially, there was a promise and an overwhelming public opinion yes, that it should happen. Yes. And now we are sitting here 28 years Almost later. Almost 28 years, yeah. And the bodies are still there. What, what, what do you think of that? Well, I think it's... Um it's brutal. It's not uh, humane. I mean, it's we normally what what we do when we lose somebody, we try to find the bodies, and uh, if it's not possible, then you have to live with it. But if it's at all possible, you you do whatever you can, because that's our nature, and it's a long tradition, and it's it's the humane way of of handling things. So. Eventually, they set up this uh, ethical group yes. to look at the issue of the bodies, and and they came to this decision that it wouldn't be done. Um, what did you think of that when you heard it? Well, the ethical committee or the advisory board was needed for the politicians and the authorities to actually be able to not to recover the bodies. So you think this group was selected basically to come to a decision that the government wanted anyway. It wasn't independent. Absolutely. And then when they had formed a group, we also have evidence that they were manipulated. I think one of the key factors, uh, was it not, was that they told the group it was incredibly difficult and dangerous to do dives to the wreck. But actually it was in relatively shallow waters and it was a job the divers could have done. I mean, we, we spoke to divers, we, we spoke to doctors, we spoke to uh, uh, rescue people, and they said, this is our job. I mean, we can easily do this. It will take some time because it's uh, that magnitude, but, but we can do it. It's not a problem for us. What did you think when you heard the decision that it wasn't going to happen? What was your first thought? Our first thought was that... Uh, there is something really, really wrong with, with this entire uh, handling of the sinking. Do you want more crowd podcasts? Let me tell you about the Crowd Stories channel. It's where you can find all of Crowd's documentaries. In one place. And for just £1 a week, they're ad-free. Addictive documentaries like American Vigilante. I'm a monster hunter. It's what I do. And Murder in House 2. I know you know what happened. You want to keep it to yourself, you suit yourself. You're going down. You can binge our groundbreaking audio fiction series, Eliza, a robot story. I have 302 minutes. 34 seconds and 2 milliseconds to tell this story. And immerse yourself in the stories of death of a rock star. Just search for Crowd Stories on Apple Podcasts. And hit the subscribe button. See you there.
Welcome back to the secret history of the Estonia. Just months after the announcement by the Swedish Prime Minister that the Estonia would not be raised, they introduced a new law. Sweden, Finland and Estonia signed a treaty agreeing they would make it illegal for their citizens to dive to the wreck. Other countries later joined this treaty, including Russia and the United Kingdom. Now this has always seemed odd to me, partly because it makes no sense why the UK would sign a treaty relating to the Baltic Sea. It's not a Baltic nation. And when I've asked the UK Foreign Office for the background material on this, I've been told that they have no relevant information. But it also seems odd because to my mind the wreck is in international waters. So to try and understand this better, we asked an expert in the law of the sea, Professor Andrew Surdy, to explain some terminology for us. So let's start with this. The term international waters, which we hear all the time, uh, what does it mean? Uh, well, you, you've got to be careful when you um, use this term because there, it's strictly um, there's no such thing in the law of the sea as international waters, but it's nonetheless a fairly commonly used phrase. And what it means, or, or the way it's used, uh, is to denote waters that are beyond the territorial sea when looked at from a land perspective. Um, there are eight maritime zones, uh, and international waters is a kind of shorthand for referring to two of them at once. Um, one is the exclusive economic zone, uh, and then the other is the high seas. Okay, great. Could you just define the territorial sea for us? The territorial sea is an area uh, immediately off the coast of any coastal state, which these days uh, extends up to 12 nautical miles from the coast. And the legal regime in the territorial sea is that it is one of sovereignty. So the coastal state has sovereignty over its territorial sea, so it can treat it from a legal perspective more or less as though it were part of its land territory. And the exclusive economic zone, what's that? So the exclusive economic zone uh, is a, a relatively new concept within the law of the sea, dating from um, the 1970s. And it's an, an area that extends from the outer limit of the territorial sea out to a maximum of 200 miles. And there, there's a combination of navigational rights which preserve the freedom of navigation on the high seas uh, and a whole series of economic and environmental type rights for the coastal states. And then just explain the high seas if you wouldn't mind. Right, well the, the high seas, um, that's best defined negatively. Um, the high seas are, are what's left over after all the other um, zones have been accounted for. So in the old days there was just the territorial sea and everything beyond was the high seas. Now there is the territorial sea and the exclusive economic zone and everything beyond the exclusive economic zone is the high seas. Okay, so you're saying let's what you're calling the high seas, what I might call international waters. Are you saying there's no there's no law that governs that? It has no 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 force of international law behind it? Oh, not by, by no means. Um, that there is a, a great deal of law, but the, the point about the high seas is that the law is applied through what's called the flag state of the ship. So the high seas is an area that no state is able to regulate in a spatial sense. So it, it, no state is able to make rules applying to all states uh, because of the international nature of the area. Instead, um, 
if we're going to avoid a legal vacuum, we need some other way of regulating it. And the way that the, the international community has developed over the centuries of doing that is to say that ships carry with them the law of their flag state. OK, let's leave Andrew there for the moment while we process some of this information. So, the Estonia lies in Finland's exclusive economic zone, but not within its territorial sea. So no country's law governs that area of the sea, as far as navigation is concerned. Ships can sail there freely, and the law that applies is that of the flag of the ship. A German boat would be subject to German law. But the treaty that was signed in 1995 by Sweden, Finland and Estonia changes things. Prior to this treaty, anyone of any nationality could navigate, sail or dive anywhere in that part of the sea because it's not in any nation's territorial sea. But after the treaty, Swedes, Estonians and Finns could be prosecuted for it. It's an important detail, and its significance becomes clear later in the story. The Joint Accident Investigation Commission released its initial findings in April 1995, and it's fair to say that many survivors and relatives were not happy with the contents. And we started reading, and we saw the sinking sequence was not that we have experienced. So, so the initial report, the timeline was wrong. Yeah, and um, we start to uh, worry about that, what will happen when the final report comes. And the final report was uh, released. And then we had it confirmed that the times are not equal to our experience. The final report, often referred to as the Jike report, was released in 1997. It was designed to be the definitive explanation for why the Estonia sank, closing the chapter once and for all. It's lengthy. You can actually get the full text online if you're interested. Its conclusions were that the Estonia sank as a result of a combination of factors, including bad weather, poor decision-making by the crew, but primarily a mechanical failure of the locking devices that led to the bow visor being ripped off, flooding the car deck. But there were so many unanswered questions and inconsistencies, including crucial details about the timeline, that it completely failed to draw a line under the disaster. At this point, I want to bring in Lars Ångström. Lars is a former Swedish MP, and he's become a key figure in the search for the truth about the Estonia. We met in Stockholm, in a podcast studio overlooking the city. Here's the first part of our conversation. So, early on, there was, uh, I think within 48 hours, people were suggesting an explanation for the disaster, the visor, etc. And, of course, then your government promised to really do everything to bring the ferry up, to bring the bodies up. Did you think at that stage, did you trust your government to do the right thing? At that stage, I did. I thought the explanations and what was happening was uh, everything was normal. And I believed uh, that the investigation that was done and presented in 1997 was the truth. Uh, I didn't uh, really uh, had any 
questions around that and I believe as most Swedes that they explained the causes of the accident and it was not until the year of 2000 I got just by accident some uh, documents in my hands and I read those papers with a really heavy criticism against the investigation and it was not just uh, any critics it was uh, you know, professors, uh, universities, uh, experts of different kinds. And I realized that this investigation was one of the most heavy criticized investigations in history. Uh, the whole, uh, you know, sea safety community in Sweden and also abroad was criticizing this investigation for not explaining how the ship could sink so fast. And uh, it was not until that time I realized that this was something really fishy around this investigation and, and what has happened. And I started to engage myself in the Estonia issue because I believe that in a state, a democratic state based on, on uh, the, the justice system, it's unacceptable that you do not find the real cause of an accident that costed more than 800 persons' lives. It's not acceptable. So in 2000, there was this moment of, if I could call it that way, revelation, where you got documents and the official explanation seemed completely wrong. Could you just summarize the documents that you saw or some of the things that you saw? One of the main issues in this document was that the investigation did never explain how Estonia could sink so fast. And an investigation that does not explain that is not the real investigation. And on top of that, there was issue after issue after issue that was not explained. Uh, things that was uh, uh, in one part of the investigation there was one thing said and on another side it was uh, another thing said and it was not really it was not a trustworthy investigation it was uh, more political compromise between three countries so this was a compromise like you said a political compromise between the the Swedes the Finns and the Estonians rather than a determination to get to the truth. Yes. And you mentioned the crucial issue of how quickly the ferry sank. So it appears that ferries of that nature where water comes onto the car deck aren't supposed to just turn over and sink. And in the example of the Polish ferry, it floated for a week. So this was one of the findings you got in 2000 which really made you think, okay, something's wrong here. Yes. A ferry can't sink like that in 45 minutes. No, it's impossible. It would have capsized and floated upside down. And that did not happen. And uh, the investigation did not explain how, how the water could get down uh, below Kardec into the ship. And if you can't explain that, th that's not a really real investigation. It's something else. And uh, we were bringing this up in the Swedish parliament in different debates, in different motions, in, in different uh, you know, tools that you have to work with in the parliament and uh, try to get new investigation. Uh, and it was a really strong resistance. There was a decision between all political parties in the parliament to not use the Estonia issue for political purposes 
which I can understand that no one wanted really to use this tragedy for their own parties, you know, to profile themselves on, on this issue, on this disaster. I can understand that, but on the, at the same time, that meant that no one was questioning the investigation or the, you know, looking into the heavy criticism that was. Uh, around this investigation. But we were a group, we had members from all parties in the parliament, all seven parties. And uh, we were really pushing this question. And we got uh, some results. We got, uh, we forced the government to uh, start some new uh, investigations, but not really investigation. It was more um, compliments. And uh, suddenly the, the drawings of Estonia disappeared and the minister was telling the Swedish parliament that there is no, no really drawings, it's very difficult. And then suddenly some drawings turned up in Finland and they show that there was uh, ventilation shafts going down from the side into the ship and uh, that was the explanation how water could get down under Kardec. But we don't know, really know if those uh, drawings are uh, correct. So suddenly a set of drawings appear which which back up the official explanation and, and previously apparently no drawings and then they suddenly appear and, and there's your explanation for the water. Yes. That's very suspicious. Yes, it makes one wonder. <laughs> it wasn't only Swedes and Estonians who were questioning the official account. Let me introduce you to another key player in this story, Greg Bemis slightly eccentric American millionaire from Santa Fe, New Mexico. I met Greg in London during the early part of my investigation for the New Statesman magazine. Greg was an entrepreneur and venture capitalist and a former Republican Party congressional candidate. He was also a diving and salvage expert and a man passionate about shipwrecks. He actually owned one of the world's most famous wrecks, the British liner Lusitania sunk off Ireland's coast in May 1915 by a German submarine with nearly 1,200 dead, including 128 Americans. The attack helped bring the United States into the First World War. Bemis bought the Lusitania from the ship's insurers, and he led several expeditions down to its resting place. His interest in the Estonia began in 2000, after being asked by relatives of victims to investigate, he led a dive down to the wreck. It was harassed by the Swedish Navy, which forced Bemis to sail from neutral Germany rather than closer Sweden or Finland. This reduced the time his team could spend diving. The Swedes also dispatched military speedboats to circle his ship, while Coast Guard officers boarded and demanded a crew list. A warrant for the arrest of Bemis was issued by the Swedish prosecutor. As we heard earlier, the treaty had made it an offence under Swedish law to dive down and explore the wreck. The US State Department warned Bemis to back off his investigation, and he faced arrest and possible imprisonment if he ever set foot in Sweden. He died of cancer in May 2020, still convinced that the truth about the Estonia had been covered up. Despite the harassment, Bemis's divers had found a hole near the bow. They filmed the wreck and brought up pieces of metal from near the bow door. Tests at laboratories in the US and Germany 
completely contradicted the official story. I have a copy of one report by Americans Kent Johnson and Kenneth Smith, published in the June 2009 issue of Advanced Metals Processes. It's pretty complicated stuff, but its conclusions, after an exhaustive analysis of the metal samples, are stunning. It found that the causes of metal fractures in the Jike report were not consistent with their analysis. The Advanced Metal Processes report summed it up in expert speak, quotes, the author's view of a high-energy fracture mechanism is consistent with the features in very rapid strain deformations leading to ductile failure, typically encountered in an explosion. That's right, an explosion. Next time on The Secret History of the Estonia. Estonia's always had a connection with British intelligence. And when Estonia regained independence, one of the first things they did was to set up an intelligence service and they decided it would have to have a big friend. It was too small a country to do it on its own. And that that big friend could only really be Britain. And so essentially MI6 helped set up and became the partner of Estonian intelligence. Yes. The Secret History of the Estonia is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis, and produced by Samantha Syke. Mixing and sound design is by Rory Auskui. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. To listen to the entire series ad-free and for exclusive bonus episodes, subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. If you're looking for something new, try .com, the hacking. It's all about Russian ransomware attacks, cyber criminals, and the ethical hackers trying to stop them. Just search for .com wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.